G'day everybody. Um, today's Bible reading comes from John chapter 4 verse 39 to chapter 5 verse 15. So I'll give you all a minute to find that one. John chapter 4 starting at verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So, when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realised that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judah to Galilee. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there in... Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralysed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, somebody else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the men who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and he told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Thanks, Josh. Before I start, well, I'm going to pray first, actually. Lord, we just really thank you for your word. 
We pray that you would give us all deeper understanding of it. Help us, Lord, to know how we can live in relationship with you because of what you've said to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I start, I just want to take you a little bit behind the scenes, first of all. Um, you probably noticed that this section of Scripture, selection of Scripture, actually straddles two chapters, um, John chapter 4 and John chapter 5. In fact, it starts in the middle of a story, the story of the woman at the well and Jesus' encounter with her. And it involves three separate incidents, that Jesus, in, you know, these encounters that Jesus has with various people. Now, it's my tendency in life, Rachel tell you this, to look for connections between things. So I wanted to first, as when Chris had given me this passage, from what is the connection between each of these different stories? Night after night after night after night, I read this passage to Quinn. Like, that was our nighttime Bible reading for a while. And in fact, after a while, she just said, Dad, can you stop reading this to me? And I said, what can we read instead? And she said, what about this one, the Song of Songs? <laughs> I said, no, maybe a psalm or two. Anyway, lo and behold, yesterday we get to the um, dad and me high tea day and one of the questions was, what's your favourite passage of scripture? And she said, it's the man at the pool. <laughs> so it's kind of worked. <clears throat> anyway, as I was reading these passages, this is what I came to realise. These three different accounts of people are all about how different people respond to Jesus. And the central theme of these encounters is belief what it takes to believe that Jesus is the saviour of the world. And there's a tension in these accounts between the miraculous events on one hand on one hand, and the words on the other. I want to show you that this is the case first before we get into some details about this passage. So let's do a quick flyover of these three accounts. But let's start backwards and go first with the man at the pool. Out of these three encounters, the man at the pool experiences the most direct miraculous intervention. It's a powerful healing after 38 years, bam! In an instant, immediate, radical, and undeniable, and life-changing. Or is it? The man's reaction seems, when you read the passage, well, mild, really. Of these three encounters, the one you would think would produce the most amazing effect is kind of an anti-climax. We'll come back to that after we've looked at the, some of the other accounts. Before the account of this man at the pool, there's the account of the official son. And there's a similar miracle here, one of astounding healing, but this one's delayed. The official doesn't find out that Jesus has actually done the miracle until the following day. And it is quite the miracle because Jesus has just said this thing from a distance and it has happened. And the man discovers it. But I think there's two very tucked away details in the passage that are actually even more important, maybe, than the miracle that occurs, and it's these. Firstly, during the interaction, Jesus makes a comment to the whole crowd, seemingly without reason. He turns to them all and says, unless you people see a miraculous sign and a wonder, you will never believe. Now, I teach drama. And in drama, you become quite aware of tone. And I've got to say that Jesus' tone doesn't sound very affirming, does it, really? Jesus isn't saying, well, how good it is that you need miraculous signs and wonders in order to believe. Nope. Isn't the actual statement really something along the lines of a criticism? The implication is this, isn't it? You shouldn't need signs and wonders. It's a weakness to rely on signs and wonders. Isn't that the tone of the statement that Jesus makes to the people? And I guess our response to that should be, well, hang on, what should we be basing our belief on? If we can't base it on signs and wonders, what should we base our belief on? 
And the answer to this, I think, is tucked away very quietly in, chapter, in verse 50 when it says that the man took Jesus at his word. Took Jesus at his word. He believed because of what Jesus said, not because of what Jesus did. So what should we base our belief on? Jesus' words. And this is an idea as we're flying backwards across these passages that's made really obvious in those verses, 41 and 42. Slide now, Michelle. There we go. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. And there is the most startling encounter of these three encounters because bam, immediate and radical and undeniable and life-changing. And why? Because of Jesus' words. These are the ones who come to understand who Jesus is in these three encounters, most of all. So each of these is about belief and about the tension between miracles, action, and words. You've heard the saying, and we've heard it before, that actions speak louder than words, or do they? Now, don't hear me saying, by the way, that Jesus' teaching is more important than Jesus' actions. The most radical, transformational, miraculous, wonderful, horrifyingly beautiful thing that Jesus did was die for us, and that's an action. Um, And... That's God the Son taking on himself all of our sin, taking on himself everything that we deserved in order that we might, get, we might not get what we deserve, but we get what he deserves. Now, obviously, that's an action that speaks louder than words. I'm not talking about our salvation. I'm talking about belief, what leads us to belief. And Jesus made it clear that believing comes from hearing the word of God. So I want to talk this morning, first of all, about the words of Jesus. Um, their nature and their impact. And then I want to look at particularly the account of the man at the pool at Bethesda, look at the pool he looks to, the person who heals him, and the product of the encounter that he has with him. Let's talk about the words of Jesus first. Their nature. It would be fair to say, would it not, that the words of Jesus are radical. They are thoroughly, wonderfully, bewilderingly, powerfully radical. You might hear people say things like, yeah, look, I really respect Jesus. He was a great teacher. Not into all that religious stuff, but I really like his teachings. All of the love and the forgiveness and the turning the other cheek, the kind of peace, brother, Jesus, cool kind of stuff. I'm into that. But really, take a little time one day and read your way through all the words that Jesus spoke. It wouldn't take that long. It might take a couple of hours. Just sit there and just read your way through. Um, if you want, there's Bibles with them written in red. I remember Mark standing up here one day and saying he didn't like the fact they were written in red because the whole Bible is the Word of God. True, good point. But if you need to find them and hunt them out, look for them in red and just read them. Just go through and read them all together. And what you'll find is that the words are comforting. Yeah. And the words are wise. Yeah. And the words are challenging. Yeah, and they're words that have affected the philosophies of the world and changed whole societies and our ways of thinking, yeah. But they're also sometimes confusing and they're sometimes paradoxical and they're terribly confronting. They're radical, radical. What Jesus says 
about us and about God and about who he is and what he is doing and what he will do and how that affects us, wow, it's radical. You can't mildly like the words of Jesus. You either accept them or you reject them, but you can't come at them as something mildly pleasant because they're not. And if you've come to that position, you haven't read them. Take a few hours one day, it's all it will take, and you'll discover exactly this. Accept them or reject them, don't mildly like them. In fact, the person who isn't a believer but kind of likes the words of Jesus is actually only thinking of a distilled sample of thought, not the whole of the teaching of Jesus, a kind of sanitized version, if you like. But you know, us in the church, we can sometimes be in danger of this as well, falling into a similar trap. We can forget too how radical these words of Jesus actually are, and we kind of normalize them, and they become even benign a little bit to us. Let's take one thought in one account, the Sermon on the Mount. At the very end of that sermon, Jesus says these words. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. And probably at the moment you're all going... And we turn these scriptures into songs. Now, scripture in song is fantastic. It's a great way to memorize them. It's a great way to embed it. And I'm going to talk about that later on as well. Not too much later, so don't worry about the time. Um, But think about what these words actually mean for a moment. What Jesus is actually saying is that his words are so important that they should be the very foundation of your life, that if you do not follow them, you are headed for certain disaster and the world will come crashing down around you unless you believe them. In fact, the Jewish audience around would have known exactly how radical that was. Because Jesus is actually claiming his words are scripture, isn't he? To these people, he would be saying, my words are the equivalent of the Torah, the prophets, the wisdom literature. This is what you need to base your life on. There should have been amongst that audience a gasp of shock at what he was actually saying. We sometimes turn them into catchy songs and we don't actually think about how radical that actually is. In fact, throughout that sermon, Jesus kept saying, you have heard it said, but I say... Think about that. You've heard it said. You know the scriptures say this, but I say, wow, that is shocking, radical. And there's just one example. Take a step back for a moment from verses that might have become so familiar, they've lost their punch because they have punch and the punch is power in our lives. And what I thought I would do very quickly is just grab a selection of the words of Jesus and not try to tell you that the words are these things, but just show you and let Jesus speak for himself. And so I'm just going to go through four areas. The words of Jesus are consoling, comforting, they're transformational, they're radical, and they're confronting. And the way I can prove this to you is just to read some out to you. Okay, here we go. comforting. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks the door will be opened. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. 
an easier task for some than others. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Read Psalm 1. I did do that after Quinn suggested the Song of Solomon. Um, And there it is. You will be like the tree planted by streams of living water. When? When you meditate on the word of God. And yet Jesus is saying, you meditate on my words and I will be that stream of living water within you. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Notice all the high modality language in these promises. If you need an English lesson, come afterwards. That's fine. <laughs> for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Consoling, comforting words, take them in. Or think of words, by the way, that are transformational or wise. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. That was a radical thought at the day, in the day, where children were not even valued until they reached age. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. To the poor, that's radical in that day. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants you to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Wow. And we love these kinds of passages. Some other cultures hate them because the idea of allowing forgiveness that easily is almost offensive in some. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let him who has not sinned cast the first stone. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love one another as I have loved you. Radical, life-changing, society-changing concepts that Jesus spoke into being. Or take these words, radical statements about who Jesus is. And whilst we like all those comforting ones and whilst we like all the wise ones, maybe not so much the one about turning the other cheek. That can create some issues for some. But these next words get very complex. This is where if you think the teachings of Jesus are nice, they become complex. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. That's a big claim for a person, a human being to make. I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. I am the light of the world. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Isn't that a promise? You know, when we start thinking, what happens to faith? Is it dying out in the world? (laughs) Jesus said his words will never pass away. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, the great judge of all. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you think Jesus is just nice in his teaching, think about how radical those statements are about who he said he was. And you either have to accept that or reject that. You can't just think of it as nice. And then the words get confronting and even seemingly paradoxical. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Do not assume that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loves his life for me will find it. What good will it be if a man gains the whole world yet forfeits his own soul? But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will live because of me. And this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. It's not nice. You've either got to accept that or reject it. And there's so many, 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 many more. I've only grabbed a sample of them and put them under those categories. And I finish with that last category, not to leave you with doubts, but because actually when you go to these passages, the ones that look most complex, they dig you in deepest into the gospel. You find out more about what the gospel means in the bits that don't make sense than you do in the ones that kind of clearly go click straight away. And the other reason I would say it is, if this is the truth of the son of the living God speaking to us, why would they be palatable human words? Surely you would expect if God was going to speak, they would be words that agitate us and rub against us and we find offensive in some ways because it's God. If we've created it, it'll be nice and palatable, but if God creates it, it's coming like a hammer. That's why I ended with that. And the other reason I did as well is this. Some people think that these gospel words, these words of Jesus were made up afterwards, that it was written after Jesus' life. Who in their right mind would make this up? 
who in their right mind would think we're going to create a religion that many people are going to believe that's going to get out there and it's going to sound wonderful and we're going to be able to promote it quickly and easily. I just showed you that it's actually really hard and easy at the same time to come to belief. And these words are so radical, they're so society-changing, so life-changing, where do they come from except from the Son of God? Let's think about their impact. Think about their impact broadly. Um, these words have changed human society. They've changed the idea in human society that every individual is valuable. That is at the core of Western culture, that every individual has value. They've shaped the ideas of redemptive justice and sacrifice. They've highlighted the importance of forgiveness. These words have been foundational to the philosophies that have shaped human society for 2,000 years. That's incredible. These words have radically changed the way people viewed God. Before Jesus spoke these words, these are not the way people thought about God. As a father who would leave the 99 to save the one, as a brother who sacrifices himself to ensure that we can be adopted as sons and daughters, of a God who's triune, three in one. And if you haven't given thought to what that means about the nature of God, dig in because it has so much to teach us about who God is and why God has created us in the first place. There's nothing like what Jesus taught before it, and yet it's changed everything we think about God after it. And what about personally? These words convict and they challenge us. They reveal us to be sinners, far worse than we thought we were, because Anger is equal to murder and lust is equal to adultery and religiosity is a pride that brings on Jesus' harshest judgment. But they also reveal us to be more loved than we could have ever imagined by a God whose eyes on the sparrow, who counts the very number of hairs on our head, who is like a father who, while far off, will run after the prodigal son, not wait for him to get to the veranda. And these words comfort us. You'll hear them read at weddings and at funerals and at the, sick, the side of people dying. In fact, I was working on my PowerPoint and watching the Queen's funeral in the background. And I had these verses already written out and there they were being read. Why? Because they comfort us. They are essential comfort, promises of abundant life, of eternal life, of being glorified with him, of him preparing a house for us with many rooms and that he's coming back to take us there and he'll never leave us nor forsake us. How comforting is that? And these are transformational, life-giving, radical words on a broad scale and on a personal scale. And I'm gonna do something now, a little bit risky. Not take a drink, that's fine. I'm going to do a little test. <laughs> this may fail and that will be the end of the message. Oh, it's all right, I'll leave. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to call out a hearty yes in a moment. If you've had the following experience. Now, some people may not have had this experience and it's okay if you haven't. It does not matter. I don't want you to call it out if you haven't. I would rather there be silence than people saying it just because I've said it. But I want you to call out a hearty yes in a moment if you've had this experience. At some stage, you've felt downcast or flat, or full of doubt, or confused. And then you take the word of God, the words of Jesus, and you read them. And an amazing thing happens to you, like a, 
a fuzzy focus becoming clear like a breeze blowing away fog, like a warmth kind of surrounding you. You find as you read those words, your mood begins to lift and your heart starts to feel elevated and your doubts start to wane. A kind of mini transformation occurs as you're reading those words. If you've had that experience before, could you just call out a hearty yes on three? One, two, three. Yes. There is the personal power of the word of God to bring change and transformation in all of us. And if you haven't had that experience before, you can have that experience. There was just a yes. And even if there were one person saying it, it's true. You can have that experience of the word of God in the deepest parts of your being. How do you get it? You push them down. You read them. You memorize them. You get them into the nooks and crannies of your life. You make sure they're there. When you doubt, you've got them to draw on. You meditate on them. You tell them to yourself. You repeat them over and over. You feed on them. You feed on them. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, hear for yourselves. And we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Radical words with enormous impact. Now we need to go to the man at the well, uh, the pool. Sorry, we'll, we'll be quick. A quick flyover, first of all, of this man at the pool. There's a lot of ambiguity in this story. Can I say this from the very outset? I think that this narrative gives us an account, but there's not a lot of commentary in there about how we should respond to this account. It's actually an account that creates more questions than it answers. First of all, the pool. Um, were there any actual healings at this pool? Some versions include verses that say that there's a belief that an angel would stir the water and then the very first person into the water afterwards would get healed. Is that true or not true? I doubt it. It seems a little bit cruel of God, doesn't it? To stir it up. I mean, the very people who need it, the very people who are lame and sick and ill, there the water gets down, they're like, no, because somebody who's weller than them, that's not an English word, so don't, high modality, come to me, don't weller. They're going to get there first. It's cruel to have such a thing. I would say this is probably a superstition. And the scriptures often don't even include those verses. But you can tell from what the man says about this belief that the water would get stirred up. And if you got in there first, you get healed. Let's assume it's superstitionally. Oh, by the way, for many hundreds of years, people actually believed that this was an account in Scripture that disproved the Bible because the architectural description of these colonnades didn't make sense in people's thinking. And so therefore, go and look it up. For hundreds of years, people used this as justification the Bible was incorrect because there could not have been such an architectural feature. And then in 1888, Conrad Schick discovered the site and excavated it, and there it is. And now, nobody doubts. But go back and look. Because the thing about the Bible is there are all these details in there, and the details allow or risk being checked. And the more the details and the more the details turn out to be true, the more it's true. Back to the account, though, and the ambiguities in it. 
What's this question that Jesus asks this man? Do you want to be made well? Is it some kind of divine icebreaker? Like, is he really asking a legitimate question or is there something more to this question? Do you want to be made well? The man doesn't actually seem to answer the question, does he? I mean, isn't the answer yes? (laughs) Instead, the man gives this explanation about why he doesn't get down there into the water on time. Why? And then Jesus heals him anyway. Like, the man doesn't answer the question and Jesus does the healing. He doesn't demonstrate any faith and he doesn't actually require... um, No, that's... We're just going to stick on that slide now. That's the one. (laughs) Doesn't... Why? Why does Jesus heal him? Then the man gets entangled with the religious leaders. Is he just getting innocently caught up in these events or is he actually... You have a feeling that he might be deferring blame just a little bit in that, throwing Jesus under the bus, so to speak, particularly at the end of the passage when he goes and tells them that it was Jesus. We didn't read the next passage, but because of that, Jesus gets persecuted. Is it fair enough that the man doesn't know who Jesus is? That's probably okay. He's been at this pool. It doesn't say he's been there for 38 years. He's been unwell for 38 years. He's obviously been at the pool for a long while because he says every time it stirs up, so it's happened a lot. He's been there for quite a while. He doesn't know who Jesus is, but should he actually then afterwards possibly go and try to find out? Why is he at the temple at the end of this passage? Is he he doing the right thing by going to the temple? This, by the way, would have been the first time he could go. Prior to that, being lame, he wouldn't be allowed in. Now healed, he can. But if he's doing the right thing at the temple, why does Jesus seek him out and go and tell him, stop sinning or a worse thing is going to happen to you? And then does the man change as a consequence of this? What happens to him? The kind of the account finishes on this strange anticlimax. It just says, and he went and told the Jews it was Jesus who healed him. Lots of questions. Well, I say all of that as a disclaimer that what I'm about to extract from this very quickly is my assumption about this passage. So please question it yourselves. Think about it. But these are the things I would say about it. I'm going to talk about the pool he looks to, the person who heals him, and the product of the encounter. Three Ps. Three Ps in the pool of Bethesda. <laughs> Let's hope not. Okay. <laughs> the more I read the passage to Quinn, the more critical I became about this man. Now, maybe I'm being unfair. Prior to this, I was quite sympathetic toward him, I've got to say. I sort of thought, here's this man paralysed for a long time. 38 years, wow. No one is there to help him. Others are being selfish because they're getting down to the water before him. Poor guy. And then, wonderful, this thing happens to him one day. Jesus comes and he heals him, transforms him, happy ending. But the more I read the account, the more my attitude changed, I've got to say. I think that the point is that the man at the pool is trusting in something that cannot fix his problem. He is at that pool because it's supposed to contain the means to heal him. But at what point does he finally accept that it can't? Well, give it 40 years and then move on? Would he have really witnessed any transformations there? Unlikely. And the fact is, he says himself why this pool is never going to work for him. He's never going to get healed because nobody takes him down to the water. What's he doing there? When does he come to the point of thinking, this is foolish, this isn't going to save me? What about us? 
our culture, our society? Are we sitting collectively or individually at pools that are supposed to transform us when they so obviously cannot? I'll give you a few examples. Schools are big into well-being programs at the moment. We've all got them. They don't involve spiritual elements, though, but they do promote self-reflection, courageous conversations, the importance of grit, developing healthy, healthy habits, self-realization. But I sometimes wonder if we're all sitting at the pool of positive psychology, telling our own words to ourselves, forgetting the words that really bring healthy minds. Is positive psychology actually a pool that can really heal us? Is our healing really found in combating climate change? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't change our practices about the climate, but for some, it's almost religiously obsessive that we do this. Is there healing to be found in voting for the right political party or in fighting for marriage equality or in promoting tolerance by supporting the rights of children to identify as cats? I've actually got that somewhere there, Michelle. You might have to go backwards, I think. Yeah, back one more, back one more, that's it. Or in silencing anything that we consider to be hate speech. These are the things that raise passions in our world and into which so many people are investing so much energy because change in these areas will make the world a better place, won't it? Or are we really just sitting at the pool of political correctness? the pool of human institutions, is it really a pool that can heal us? When I was preparing this message, I opened my email at one stage, and I've had the same private address for a long time, so I get a lot of junk. In fact, I pretty well only get junk. <laughs> and I happened to open it, and I had these emails in a row, and they promised me these things. There was an email about dieting, so the keto diet thing, about investing in Bitcoin. There were revelations to be revealed in my horoscope. Um, there's apparent opportunities to find Latin love, whatever that might be. I'm still actually learning a lot about English love, so I don't really need Latin. <laughs> and then there's this some product here, Man Plus, um, that is an all-natural way for men to enhance their... I didn't open it, so I can't tell you what I'd be able to enhance. <laughs> there it is. Is it not? The pool of pseudo-religion horoscopes, body image, relationships and sex and money, can they really heal us? And when they don't, does our society, do we just make excuses as to why they're not working? What are we doing there at those pools, really? Why are we looking to those things? Is this not really the intent behind Jesus' question? What are you doing here, I think he's saying to the man. Do you really want to be made well? I think the man knows that Jesus is questioning the reason for him being there because look at the man's answer. The man doesn't say, yes, I do want to be made well. The man makes excuses for why the pool hasn't worked. No one's there to carry him down. That's why he hasn't been made well. That's the thing that's missing. You can tell from his answer that he thinks Jesus is probing his motivation because he feels he needs to offer an explanation. When Jesus asked him, does he want to be made well, it would seem that what he's really indicating that the man's put his confidence in the wrong thing. Do you really want to be made well? Well, it's time for him to look elsewhere for that healing and Jesus is redirecting the man's thinking, both in the source of his healing but also in the type of healing. 
Because when Jesus goes back to him and says to him, stop sinning, what he's indicating there is that this man needs spiritual healing, not just physical healing. He needs healing for his soul as well as for his body. We also need spiritual healing and spiritual intervention. We also need to deal with our soul, not sitting at pools that apparently promise outcomes that they will not deliver, just trying to resolve human society around us. Something else needs to change. When Jesus asked the man to take up his bed and walk, he's in fact revolutionising his life because the healing does not come from an action, doesn't come from a general source of power, it comes from a person. And this is my second P in the pool of Bethesda. The person who heals him. You know, in many ways that pool would have been a safe source of healing. What I mean by that is, if it did work, it actually didn't require much of the man at all except to get down there in time. And in fact, if it did heal him, he could actually think it was his own actions that led to that. He got there. He was the first. He did it. And it would actually be simpler to stay at the pool, just to believe in human endeavours and sources of meaning, human solutions to our problems, even when they don't really work. Because when the man takes up his bed and walks, something fundamental must change because his healing is not in a thing and it's not in a practice, it's not in a set of human ideals. His healing is in an individual, it's in a person. And that's confronting because then you have to deal with the identity of that individual. And you have to know whether that individual requires anything else of you you have to deal with a person then with opinions and perhaps demands. And a person can speak words to us. And with a person, there's an opportunity for a relationship. An impersonal source of healing is unthreatening. A person, mm, that is another thing entirely. And you can see it. Because the moment this man did what Jesus said, it brought him into conflict automatically with the people around him. It brought him into conflict with his own world. And it will bring us into conflict too with our world. If we are going to take on the words of Jesus and live according to them and believe in them and proclaim them, it will at times bring us into conflict with our world. I may have said things in this message that would in some circles bring me into conflict with the world. I've shown you though, that these are just words that Jesus spoke. They will bring us into conflict with the world when we say no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. It will bring us into conflict the minute you start taking on what a person says. This man defers the blame, I think. I think he does throw Jesus under the bus a little bit. But I actually think here's a more important thing. Why does that man not seek out to find out who did this? If he doesn't know who did this for him, why doesn't he find the answer to that? There is a person involved in this healing. There is a person to seek. There is a person to find. There is a person to learn from. There is a person to get to know. There is. It was Jesus. He came to him and healed him. Do we realise that's what Christianity is? It's not a set of rules to follow. It's not a bargain we make with God that if we're good enough, he'll bless us. It's not getting something. It's not another pool that we're sitting at. In actual fact, I think that man was at the temple 
sitting at another pool. We could be at church sitting at a pool. Because if we're looking to the pool, if we're looking to the religion, if we're looking to be here because, well, if I'm at church, God will then bless me, he'll sort things out for me. We've got the wrong end of the stick. We need to be looking for the person, not the pool. We should also be seeking out that person, seeking out that truth, seeking out those words, seeking out that relationship. Lastly, the product of this encounter. I wonder, out of the two encounters that this man had with Jesus, which was the more radical, the healing or the words? It doesn't seem that the healing had that much of an impact, actually, when you look at it carefully and closely. And then Jesus had to seek him out and tell him those words, which must have been pretty confronting. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. I don't think Jesus is saying what happened to you before is the consequence of you sinning, as in you're being punished. Otherwise, if that were the case, we'd all be being punished all the time for all our sin. We're all sinners. But maybe that what Jesus is saying there is, don't just deal with your body, deal with your soul. If you don't deal with your soul, you are going to face a far worse catastrophe than sitting at a pool for 38 years. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. What happens to the man? Nothing's disclosed, actually. It's kind of an anticlimax. It tells us that he went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who healed him and nothing after that. What do we hope happened? I hope that he stopped sinning and I hope that he found a way to get into relationship with Jesus. I hope that he sought out Jesus' words. I hope that he responded to Jesus' words. And here's the thing. We may not be living in that 33-year time period when we could have a direct interaction with Jesus, God in the flesh, where we could therefore maybe experience radical miracles. But what are those things anyway? What did it mean to the man at the pool that he got healed? There were lots of people, the account said, and Maren pointed out this morning in the kids' talk, that saw these miracles and didn't believe. They had all sorts of excuses as to why. And they got caught up on their own thinking. So what are the miracles anyway? What really changes us? What really changes people? It's actually the words the words do it. And you know, we still have them. We may not have access to those direct miracles, but we still have the words. In fact, more so because they're collected, collated, documented, constantly available to us. We just have to open a book and there they are. And we can read them all and take them in. These are the very same words. <coughs> about which the disciples said this to Jesus when he questioned them. He said, you do not want to leave me too, do you? And Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are 
the Holy One of God. Where else can we go? Maybe we need to get up from the pools and get into the words. Preserved for us, powerful in us, consoling and transformational and confronting and radical and life-changing. Let's pray. Lord, wow that these words have had so much impact over such an enormous period of time that people here sit and say, yes, I have experienced the powerful, life-changing, affecting word of God. And Lord, that we can absorb these and know them, meditate on them and consume them and push them down into the very deepest part of who we are, that they become the natural way we think, the filter through which we see the world. And therefore, Lord, we come into relationship with you because those words invite us into that relationship. Lord, help each one of us here to respond to that and to be changed and changed permanently and forever. And we ask this, Lord, in the precious and powerful name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.